This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, brought to you by Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk all things mental health with clients and clinicians. I'm Francis Carlton, and I'm the Secret Keeper. As usual, there may be tears, laughter, some learning, maybe some profanity, and you've been warned. So sit back, make yourself a cup of tea, and relax when I talk to Marina. Welcome, Marina. Thanks, Francis. It's great to be here. Yeah. You were really excited about coming to this. Yeah, really excited. Why Um, were you so excited? I spent, I have spent a lot of time promoting my mental health and mental health in general for the last 20 years. I've stopped, I've slowed down a bit maybe in the last two years, but I relish an opportunity to make people aware of life with Mm. a mental illness and what it's like and Mm. I think it's valuable. So, Mm. yeah, that's why I was excited. Mm. And and I... I sort of we have to blow the trumpet of secrets we share a bit. You have listened to a few episodes. I have listened to loads of episodes on the tractor. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the tractor a little bit later on. Okay. <laughs> so we'll start with. Please describe yourself in three words. Um, I I sort of thought about this for a while, and I came up with some words which I think make me sound like I'm blowing my own trump- trumpet. Um, I chose resilient, courageous, and I can't remember the third one. Steadfast. Steadfast. <laughs> there you go. Um, because I I believe that I am incredibly strong and capable of, and I have survived a lot of sort of difficulty in mm. terms of mental illness difficulty. Mm. And it's, you know, it's a big, a big journey mm. with lots of twists and turns. And what is your, what does your journey start with? Just my journey start with my mental illness journey began when my son Sam was born. Um, he he was delivered, I thought, very very quickly, and was completely fine. But there was a big sort of shock factor for me. And about um, maybe ten days after he was born, I don't really know how to describe how I felt other than to say that I started to feel a bit weird and not myself, to the point where I took myself off to the GP and I said, I've had a baby and I feel a bit strange and um, she couldn't see anything, that anything was wrong. And she sent me home again. And time went by, maybe another couple of days, and I started to hallucinate and become delusional. I had two very small people. I had Sam, as I said, who was two, maybe two weeks old, and Hugo, who was about 17 months old and my husband was working and I started to um, see people who weren't there and hear noises that weren't there. Um, And I also, I guess the, the really the key thing for me was that I stopped sleeping. I was unable to sleep because there was so much noise, so many voices and so many things to, to see and it was the year 2000, so that was when prior to the year 2000 everyone was saying, oh, my gosh, the, the computers will crash and the aeroplanes will fall out of the sky and all this terrible stuff will happen. Obviously it didn't. But 
that was a big part of it, me having to fix everything. Um, and my mum had, had been, we lived in Sydney, my mum had come to help me with the children and at that point I was slowly getting sick and um, she went home. She lives. She lived at Gundaroo, which is about half an hour away from here. Mm. She did a welding course. She was talking to her friend at the welding course and her friend said, how's, how's Marina? And um, my mum described what was happening and, and her friend had had this postpartum psychosis and said, get back to Sydney and get help. And by the time my mum got there, because I hadn't had any sleep, I was literally sitting on the sofa in a sort of catatonic state um, and she called the crisis team and they, you know, chuffed me off to the psych ward in Manly where I spent six weeks and then another 12 months getting my stuff together, my head together. What was that six weeks like? Oh, I was I was really on another planet. It was... It was six weeks really without much contact with my children um, and sort of six weeks, not the entire six weeks, but maybe one or two weeks of, of not understanding where I was or what was happening and, you know, having to take lots of medication and having to express the breast milk, which was done with an electric pump, and the nurses would come in and they'd express the milk, and then they'd go around the corner and they'd tip it down the sink in the bathroom. And because I was so sick, I couldn't understand what was happening. And I just kept thinking, why are they throwing out this precious breast milk? But it was because of all the drugs. Mm. So obviously it couldn't be given to Sam. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was really tough. It was later on the psych ward has become more interesting to me, but I think that's because I've being able to get there quicker and and not possibly not being quite so ill every time. Mm. So you have you have spent you have spent a bit of time in the psych wards. Yeah, over I the have. Years. I I've had I I mean I was trying to think about how many psychotic episodes I've had and I really I don't know but I I'd, I'd say maybe at least 6. And they're all different to each other. Mm, okay. Um it's not always the same pattern it, it changes. Um, well, I think that they begin for the same sort of reason, something, whatever it might be, very stressful happens in my life and I take it on and, and it sort of escalates from there and, and the sleep disappears and then the, the hallucinations and the delusions begin. So that, that pattern is, is the same, but you know, you just, you don't really know why, apart from a stressful situation, it happens. Um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it can come out of nowhere. So in the main, those experiences have been good for you? The psychosis has never been good. I mean, the tri trips to a hospital, no, the psychosis. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm talking about the trips to the hospital <laughs> in the moment. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> No, um, the trips to hospital, oh, look, I've had, I had one really, really bad trip to hospital, which was frightening. Um, but apart from that one, one experience of, of being in this dark sort of corridor, um, apart from that, 
hospital is is a sort of retreat for me. It's a it's a place that you can just just be and hopefully feel safe. I think that that's a big part of my my thing is to really feel safe with with where I am and what's happening. And generally, at the beginning of a psychosis, I'm so off. I want to say off my head. That sounds wrong, but <laughs> I'm so not there that it doesn't. It wouldn't necessarily matter where I was. But to be somewhere where you know that you're not going to cause any harm to yourself or anyone else, mm. it's very valuable. Mm. Mm. And there um, has you said when this started, you had just had Sam, yeah, and your husband was working. And how how was the support from your family and your partner? When you when you were able to come out of hospital that first time, yeah, um, they were they were really amazing. I think probably I was looking at some photos of Hugo and Sam when they were little, just last week, and there were some photos of of my family looking looking after them, holding them, and and you know it was that time when I was really sick, and they all just sort of bunkered down and and hung in there and and made sure that we were all okay, which was just what I think should happen but doesn't necessarily for everyone else. Mm. And they it just kept going, you know. I think the difficult thing for my family and for me is that I was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, which they say is a one-off. They say you just get this psychosis because of the birth of your child and whatever's happened in that and it'll never happen again. But it it kept happening. So we have every time it happens, we have to kind of gather ourselves together and and it's not just me that gathers myself together, it's my whole family. Mm. Um and keep on going. Mm. So the impact is to your whole family and your friends and everyone around you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean it it I think as I get better at at dealing with what what the psychosis is and what happens afterwards it gets better for everyone else. But it used to take me probably 12 months to really, really feel like I could be in the world properly and and function in a normal way. But it doesn't take that long anymore, <laughs> which is great after 20 years. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, so tw- but 12 months to be sort of apart from the world after you're having this psychosis. Yeah. That's that's quite a quite a recovery time to be able to be confident to sort of get back into things. Again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think originally, you know, maybe for the at least the first one, it was largely to do with the shock mm. and you know how did this happen to me and what is this? Mm. What is this thing I've never heard of that just hit me from the blue? And I mean, now I know what it is and how it happens and why it, why why it is. But it just, it, it has got easier. And I think I've got happier as well. Mm. And I think that that's a big one. <laughs> so a couple of years after that first incident, you, yeah. had, you had another one and you got a diagnosis with that. Yeah, I, I had another episode um, about five years later. But the cool thing about that was that in the, in the time between the first episode and the second episode, I worked, I volunteered in an organisation called MEACT, which is Mental Illness Education ACT, mm. um, and you go into high into yeah, high schools 
and you talk with another person to the students and you give um, sort of an overview of the five major mental illnesses. Um, and then after you've done that, each each of the people, each of us, get to tell our story, which was great. But what I really learned from it, apart from the other participants' story, which I was always really interested in, was things like the signs and symptoms and the how how each of these illnesses works in a very broad overview. But so I learned. So when I got sick the second time, I went to the hospital. I went to the emergency ward at Calvary, and I basically told them what was wrong with me. And I got. I just happened to get this nurse, or I'm not sure if she was a nurse, a person who worked there. Um, who said to me, I think you have bipolar disorder. And it was just this sort of light bulb moment of, of my life, even my early life from, from 12 onwards, making sense, you know, actually maybe that's true. And lo and behold, it is true. <laughs> so but it, it's a right. lot easier to cope when you when you sort of know what's wrong <laughs> yeah so once you had that diagnosis what what happened to you now that you so you know what's going on it's not postpartum psychosis it's something well that could well have been but this is not an ongoing thing you now have this diagnosis of bipolar what happened next so I went to hospital that I just told you about the nurse yeah. who said I think you've got bipolar and um, it was Christmas time, I think, and I went to the hospital and I had a psychiatrist who was looking after me. And it was, in some ways, I guess it was similar to, to the psychosis I had with Sam because it, it had a build-up. And during the build-up, for some of it, I can seem perfectly normal and I can be sitting here having a conversation with you and there's... To me, I can see someone in the corner who's not really there or there might be someone talking to me and I'm not telling you any of this. Um, that's kind of how how the build-up is. And I went to Heisen Green, which is Calvary mm. psych ward. Yes. Um, and the, the doctor that I had didn't really believe that I was sick. Um, right. And it was Christmas and all the doctors went away and by the time, it was very similar to when my mum went to the um, welding course, except it was Christmas and the doctor went away. Mm. Um, and by the time we got back, I was just off with the fairies again. Um, this I don't is the doctor I, that hadn't believed that you were yeah, sick. Yeah, So I, I've, I've, I've had that, that's the only doctor I really haven't liked. I've had Three or four more have been fantastic, but that was a, a bad one. Mm. I don't think I answered your question then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which was what happened next about the, that was what your, happened next with so, your diagnosis. What happened with the diagnosis? Okay, so with the diagnosis, so I got the diagnosis, and I still got really sick. And I guess after after that Christmas experience in the hospital with the doctor, who I didn't really like, I got out of that one, and I and I thought, I can't go to that doctor. I was so angry with him. And so I found through a, a bit of investigation another doctor who worked through Calvary. And he was brilliant. He was 
I mean, I would go so far as to say that I really loved him. Mm. I just felt like he was on my side. He made me want to be the best that I could be with what I had. Mm. He he jiggled around with my medication a bit and it really worked. Um, I still had challenges from the medication, but I just wanted to be well and I felt like I had this person who was absolutely 100% behind me. Mm. And it, it meant that I could be in the world. <laughs> What was uh, what what what's one of the challenges or some of the challenges presented by the by the medication? Um, well, my my biggest challenge for the whole of this journey has been weight gain, um, which sounds a bit. Why would you worry about that? But um, the one of the drugs that I take takes away the feeling of fullness when you eat. Um, so you never, ever feel like you've had enough to eat. Um, so I have at times gained between 35 and 45 kilos in a fairly maybe 12-month period, and I don't like it. Mm. I, don't, I don't want it. <laughs> mm. So it's been a real challenge, and I've managed to go from, from my normal weight to the 45, 35 to 45 kilo extra and down about three times, three or four times, and that's a challenge. The other challenge I, I have just thought of is that I find it very difficult to remember things when I read. So I can go to bed and I can read a chapter of a book or whatever you read at night, mm. and I can go back the next day to next night to read the book, and I want to read the book. It's not a case of <laughs> not being interested in the book, and I can't remember what I've read. Right. So it makes it really, really hard. It just means that. Do you read out loud? No, I don't. But I have thought about that. That could be a way that it could work. It's. For, I. I. I have quite a. F I have quite a few clients who have who have who struggle. They want to read, but they can't remember stuff when yep. they when they're reading silently in their own head. Mm. I used to have the same problem. Yeah. And I was reading an article, and it actually started with the line. This article is designed to be read out loud. Cool. And I started reading it about seven times in my head. Yep. And then I kind of went, hang on, hang on. They, to they told me to read it out <laughs> loud. They literally told me to read it out loud. And so I poured myself a glass of wine, and this is going back a few years ago, and sat down and I started reading it out loud. Yep. And I was, it suddenly made so much more sense. That's cool. And because I'm, I also do a lot of poetry, poetry is written to be performed. It's written to be read mm. out loud mostly. So I actually now read everything out loud. Right. So when I was studying and all that sort of stuff, all my all my readings I read out loud. My dog and my cat are the most educated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I read, it, I, read every, I read everything out loud. That is so cool. Well, I've, I've thought about sort of things like taking notes as I read, but I think it's a bit too clinical. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. Do I really want to make a note in the margin all the time about what's happened in the book? Yeah, maybe, maybe try reading out loud. But that could be my new thing, reading out loud. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, 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 it's because you're hearing it, you're hearing it, you're saying it. Yeah. So you're experiencing it in a very different way than you do when you read it in your head. So if you get into bed at night, do you read out loud? Yes. That's great. Every night for about <laughs> half an hour. 
I love it. And I'm pretty sure if anybody ever saw me doing it, they'd think I was compl- I completely lost the plot. Do you find it exhausting reading out loud? I actually find I can't read for as long. Yep. But I think that's actually a lot better because it means that I actually retain everything that I read. Yep. I don't skim. It's much, much harder to skim when you're reading out. Yeah, you've sort of got to nail each each word. Yeah. I'm <laughs> reading, it, it I'm reading out John's biography at the moment. Excellent. And I'm reading that out loud. And the other thing that the other thing I've noticed is that when you read out loud, you you can almost hear the voice of the person that's written. Yes. Because it's because it's with everything's written in a different voice. Mm. Whereas when you read in your head, you're reading it in your voice. This is true. Excellent. I should give it a crack. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so just one of the little tips from, yeah. from you know. So yeah, it's it's it can be fun. But you and you have you have you have a, a you have a dog? No, I don't have any any pets. I thought, I thought, oh no, you oh no, you have cows. Yeah, we have cows. We have so I live on a farm um, at in Gundaroo, and we have well, we don't have many cows at the moment. We probably only have about eighty cows because of the drought. There's no water. There's no mm. grass. Hopefully, everybody knows that. Mm. Bit of a plug for the yeah <laughs> for the farming life. Um, so we don't have many, but we usually have probably about 150, 150 Angus, um, what are they, shorthorn cross creatures who are gorgeous and lovely and a couple of bulls and, um, you know, it's it's great. It's, it's so good. The cows are sort of easy to cope with and we have a great manager who helps. I'm meant to be learning how to be a farmer and I've learned heaps but it's lovely to have a, another person to show you the ropes and show you the way. Yeah, so it's less trial and error. Yeah, and it's lovely just to live in such a great place. Mm. You know, lots of trees and and beautiful birds and creatures around you. Mm. So this is the family farm that's been in the family for a few years? Yeah, well, it. I mean, look, the furthest back I can remember was my grandfather, um, but I think his father had it before him. And it was big. When my grandfather had it, it was sort of 3,000 acres. And, you know, I mean, I think that's huge. Mm. Um, and they had sheep. But um, then my mum, uh, she's not here anymore, she's dead, but I would say we got lucky and somebody arrived and said they wanted to buy it and she said, yes, please, and and became a cattle farmer and and did 20 years being a cattle farmer, and I think really just loved being able to to not stress out about paying the bills and mm. normal life things that, that people do that suddenly became a lot easier for her. Mm. Mm. So where does the tractor driving come in with the, with the cows? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the moment the tractor driving is happening because we've got lots of fallen down, you know, old logs and, well, old logs, and um, they're all in the house paddock. So I've been tractor drivering them, picking them up and carting them into the bull paddock where the bulls are not at the moment mm. and, um, you know, creating bonfires. But um, I keep trying to create bonfires which I think can be contained when we light them in the winter. And then yesterday the manager got on the tractor and he started carting and he created this huge pile and I thought oh my god we have to burn it one day it'll run up into the trees and then everything will be on fire but anyway <laughs> that's for another day 
<laughs> I have um I have some friends who um live on a farm out out past Bungendore. Yeah. And they um they recently had to do the same thing with the bonfires. Mm. And they had 14 of these things on their yeah. on their property and they were the size of a house. <laughs> And and they they had to just write for the wait for the perfect time to burn them, of course, because you know it's they've got to be a certain level of yeah. They can't be too wet. They can't be too dry. Everything around can't be too wet, too dry. Exactly. And you, you know you've got to just do it very strategically. Well, I was talking to Steve, the manager, about it, and I said, "Look at all these piles that we can burn." And he said, "Well, if we don't get any rain in the autumn, we can't burn them." Mm. Well, I suppose that makes sense. We haven't had any rain for so long. Mm. Uh, anyway, there'll be lots of little piles of. Well, don't forget to wrap some bape, some potatoes, and foil, <laughs> and chuck them in as yes, well. Yes, that's a fabulous idea. <laughs> they'll, just, they'll just sit. They can just sit on the side for about three minutes, and yeah. they'll be done. <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> I love it. You get some heat from those big bonfires. So going back to um, going back to your your diagnosis, there was um, you were telling me earlier on about how you became your diagnosis. Yeah, I really did, and I didn't realize that I had become my diagnosis until I was no longer my diagnosis. So I, I spent, I would with great shame say probably about the first 16 years of my diagnosis being my diagnosis. I would I would introduce myself as my name, I wouldn't, but it would feel like this when I look back on it. My name is Marina and I have bipolar because it was that was all that I could cope with in my head. And, you know, it was probably incredibly boring for everyone else, but it was where I was at. And in the last sort of year and a half to a year, I've, I've, my life has changed. I've, I'm in a new relationship and I'm back at home on the farm, having lived in Melbourne for six years before that. And I'm really happy and I'm not focus so much on this difficulty of my head mm. so I think I've I like I said I spent you know 17 or 18 years being bipolar mm. but now I'm marina <laughs> what what's that what's that enabled you to do that sort of that that freedom of just going well I'm marina um well the anxiety level is just way lower um and the way that I could say that is is that I don't bite my fingernails as much I don't chew my finger as much they're just thing little things that I have seen along the way that I don't do anymore um that's a big one and you know just just being able to be and to be peaceful in the world and not to be worrying about if I don't go out and exercise every day for however long I felt I had to or if I don't if I don't run my life in a certain way, is it going to matter if I don't do that? And I think that I've learned it doesn't matter. You know, you can actually live without the stringent rules and regulations that I lived with mm. and it's okay. You will be okay. How has being Marina versus Marina with bipolar affected your relationships? So I'm in a relationship with a woman called Simone who lives in Sydney and she's never known me as anything other than what I am. Um, and I feel as though I have a different relationship with her to the one I had with my husband in relation to my bipolar. She's 
pretty hyper aware of it and ready to jump on it if anything happens, which is great because it takes away the responsibility that I have mm. and that I've always felt that I had um, to figure it out. Um, so, I mean, that's different from my point of view, even though she wasn't there for the other part of it. But the rest of my my ex-husband and my kids, they're in Melbourne and they don't, I don't see them all the time. And I think I probably just seem really, really normal to them as I probably always have been. <laughs> you just have these moments where you sort of blip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and disappear, disappear off for, you know, four to six weeks and then come back. And exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and what about friendships? Oh, friendships. Look, I think I could safely say that I'm not a person with, with a million, million friends in the world. Um, I have sort of fairly fairly loyal friends but along the way with the whole bipolar experience I, I've lost well I could probably say at least five friendships which which were in my life that has caused me a lot of sadness um, and I guess that sadness has been because they've ended without any explanation and I always I've noticed that they tend to end after some catastrophic mental health <laughs> nightmare and I think, oh, what did I say or what did I do? Or, And there's never really an explanation. They've gone and they won't come back and, you know, that's that's been a big thing. So there's a sense of loss. Oh, there. huge. Absolutely. Mm. Grief, mm. really, that's what it is. Mm. That, that must be very, very tough to experience that. Yeah, I think it, it it's hard. Mm. Especially because there's that mystery element to it. It's not a this person has died, therefore that's why I'm never yeah. going to see or hear from them ever again. It's much more of the I don't know what I've done, I don't know what I said, I don't know how to, if I can, how, how I can fix this. Yeah, you don't know what you've done and you you don't, you, you might send a text message and say how are you going and you won't get a response and you think, oh, well, that's okay, they're busy and it'll just go on and eventually you'll realise that, actually no I can't that's it it's gone mm. and even if you ask for an explanation you don't get one <laughs> mm. so it's it's tough are you are you would you be ready to receive the explanation if someone was prepared to give it to you yeah I think so yeah I think it's it's not nice to know what you've done but it, it's it's nice to to know what's happened so you can say far out you know that must have been horrible for you I'm really sorry mm. and even if you, you don't speak after that, I still believe it's good to know. <laughs> that opportunity to make amends. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yes. It's called ghosting. Yeah, it's a horrible thing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> How does anyone do it to anyone, I wonder? Yeah. I couldn't. Yeah, it does make it, it does make it, uh, it, it's a tough thing to experience. Yeah, very. <laughs> mm. Mm. So you you you're now living out on your farm, um, yeah, full time. Well, I live there full time, although I go to Sydney a lot because, as I said, I have a relationship in Sydney, yeah, um, which is really fabulous, and you know, I believe makes it worthwhile leaving home every however often I leave home, yeah. But I always loved coming home to the farm, and I get to the ramp, and it's just this big sigh of relief of thinking, oh. This is bliss, you know, this beautiful country and mm. peace and quiet. So is there, is it, 
I know that when I when I when I drive away from home, when I'm driving back, I have an outer marker and an inner marker. Like when yeah. I get to these particular points, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm just, I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. Do you have a similar? No, I think I think it's the ramp. I think I literally get to the ramp at the of the the entrance, and yeah. I go, oh, this is cool. I don't really, you know, I mean, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you, you, you have it gives you this sense of peace and this real sense of home. Yeah, it's really, it's just where I belong. I mean, I, I, I see the sign at Back Creek Road, and I think, yep, yippee, yep, down Back Creek Road, along the dirt road, and um, it's just, it's just really good. I mean, it's funny because I grew up on that farm, and I didn't, didn't particularly like it as I was growing up. I found it, you know, quite challenging, and I wasn't. I remember in year 11 saying to my mother that I didn't want to go home, I couldn't stand it, which must have been awful mm. for her. Um, but now it's Because it was a farm she'd grown up on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So now, now it's bliss. It's lovely. Were you able, before your mum passed away, were you able to let her know how much you appreciated the farm now? Oh, definitely. And I wanted um, to build a house on on part of it so she knew that and she knew that I wanted to come home and, and build a house and live there and I know that she thought that was pretty cool <laughs> oh wonderful yeah <laughs> wonderful 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 what do you do for your self-care I do for my self-care I think a lot of my self-care has been about exercising and eating properly um which probably sounds very boring I'm sure there's a lot more creative, exciting things to do. <laughs> but those two things make a huge difference to my mental health. Do they build in that resilience? Yeah, I mean, they're just they're just so important. I feel different when I do it. You know, it's a discipline. They're both disciplines. Mm. But, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you've got the cows. That's self-care too. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing yeah. quite like the sound of mooing in the morning, I'm sure. <laughs> Yes, and the bulls, are in the, when they're in with the cows, they'll get mooing away. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so, but just before we go, I always like to ask my guests, what do you see as your mental health future? My own? Yeah. Um, I see that it can only get better and better. Somebody said to me many years ago, it gets easier as you get older. And I thought, oh, don't be ridiculous. But I'm so I'm 45 now and it it does seem to get easier. So I think I'll just keep going the way I am and and hope for the best. And and think yep, it's getting easier, it'll just keep getting easier. <laughs> well, thank you so much Marina for sharing your story with us today and sharing some of your secrets. Thank you. There will of course be an extra secret for the Patreon patrons, so we'll there. <laughs> We'll leave that for now, but thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you to my guest, Marina, for sharing her secrets today. Thanks to Nick, my podcast guy, for helping with the sound and the sound editing. Thank you to you, the listener, for continuing to listen and subscribing and rating. Those ratings and subscriptions really make a difference. If you have a secret that you'd like to share, I would love to hear from you. Please send an email through my website, secretkeepercounseling.com.au. And until next time, stay well.
thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.